Well, we've had a lot of bad news here at Southland over the last uh, uh, month, couple months, couple of years. Um, people dying, accidents, cancer, young people, all sort of stuff. But uh, I'm going to speak, a, we're going to uh, do a new series uh, for a couple of weeks. I know Pastor Ray said he was going to talk about marriage for a while, but uh, uh, everything we do here at Southland, don't believe us. We just start series when we want and end them when we want. He's got to do a marriage retreat next week, and so he has got more work than he knows what to do with, and it's going to be an amazing retreat. But anyway, uh, I want to talk about hope. And I think it's just the most, I mean, just the way the Holy Spirit sets it up. And, and uh, this past week, I uh, sat down with, with uh, Pastor Ray in his office, and, and we were talking, and, and uh, we just felt like God was saying this was a time for a series like this, and then we see some of the things that have now happened this weekend, and, and it's just perfect timing. But I want to talk about hope. And, uh, and what, do you, what do you do when you face bad news and when trauma happens and accidents and you get a diagnosis and all those sorts of things? What do you do? How do you find hope in that time? How do you overcome? How do you get victory? And that's what I want to talk about uh, for the next couple of weeks. And uh, you might be uh, sitting here today and you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm, I'm not in a crisis right now. I don't know if this message speaks to me. Well, it's not just, I mean, there's different kinds of crises, right? There's a whole spectrum. You've got someone, a loved one just died. That's like really big. And, you know, you got just diagnosed with cancer or some big disease. That's big, okay? But there's a whole continuum. You might be in a marriage relationship that's been awful for four or five or ten years and you don't know where to go. That's, that's tough too. How do you find hope in that situation? Or maybe you think to yourself, you know, you're nowhere on this. Well, Jesus said in this world you're going to have many troubles. That's a promise. So if you're not in trouble right now, you're pre-trouble, okay? And this message will speak to you at some time. But I want to talk about when those tough times hit, how do you find real hope? How do you overcome? You've had a big prayer request and you've been looking for a miracle and a door gets slammed shut. What do you do? How do you overcome in that, in that moment? And and the first thing I want to say is this. I want to say it's not a formula. And I want to, I want to repeat that over and over again over the next few weeks is uh, finding hope and overcoming in these traumatic circumstances is not a formula. And one of the things that disappoints me about a lot of the teaching that's going on in North America right now is the teaching about how to get hope and how to overcome in your circumstances is so formulaic. Three steps to a miracle. I saw some series this week on, on, you know, 10 steps to be happy and healthy and all this sort of stuff. Three steps to this miracle. Claim this promise for this sickness and this verse for that problem and pray this prayer and say this statement and then the devil has to leave you alone and very formulaic. And, and again, and it's not that there aren't any practical things we can do. It's not that I'm against all practical help when it comes to hope and trauma, all that sort of stuff, but we have to get, there's more than just practical See, true hope is not founded on a what, it's founded on a who. It's who God is, sitting in his throne in sovereignty and majesty. He made the universe with the keys of life and death. Hope is founded in who he is, not what prayer am I going to pray? What thing am I going to say? What promise am I going to claim? It's in a who. It's a relationship. And so next week, I'm just gonna, we're going to talk about the character of God, who he is, because that is hope who God is. When you know who he is and you begin to get to know him for yourself, that's when you have hope when you're in a dark place and you need hope. But this week, before we get to that, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about counterfeit foundations of hope because there are counterfeit foundations for hope that are being taught all over. 
And the problem with them isn't that they're wicked or sinful or super horrible. Most of them are fine and good things in and of themselves. The problem is, is that they masquerade for the real thing. They masquerade for the real thing. And people will do these things thinking that they're pleasing God and doing what they need to do to overcome in their situation when the only thing that really matters is walk with him. But they'll do these things instead of walking with him. These are fine things sometimes in and of themselves. But if they take you away from rooting yourself in the presence of God and spending time with him for yourself, then it's total counterfeit. I want to help you distinguish between the counterfeit and the real because when you need hope and when you need to overcome, it's got to be the real thing. It's got to be the real thing, all right? So bow your head with me and close your eyes and then we will get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I want to just first start by lifting up Ed Penner today. And Lord, uh, married to Irene for many, many years, God, and now his life changes. I pray, God, that you would give him revelation and wisdom. How does his new life look? How does he live it? I pray that you would give him a sweet, fresh sense of your Holy Spirit in the coming days and weeks and months. Father, that he would be close to you, Father, and that you would fill the void of loneliness. Lord, I pray for the Unruh family, for Tammy and all the kids and the grandkids. Father, I pray that you would lift them up today. Jesus, I pray that you, would, that you would just give them strength in this time, God. I pray that you would give Tammy, Lord, with the farm and all the work and the, and the family. So there's so much stuff that's piling up for her, Father. I pray that you, it says in your word that you are with the orphans and the widows and you are with Tammy today. And help us as a church body to help her too. And I pray for the family and all the other ones, Lord, that I can't name in this family, that are suffering and in tough times right now. Jesus, I pray that their faith would not fail them in this time. I pray that you would speak to them powerfully in this time and they would hear you and experience you in ways that they never did before. In your name I pray, amen. Well, I, this message, by the way, is really disorganized, okay? Just so you know off the top. I tend to be an organized person. I tried very hard all week to make this message flow in such a way that I could go one point after another, and I can't. So it's just going to be a schmoz. I'm just going to put them up there, and we're going to talk our way through them, and you know what they are in advance, and I'll just repeat myself for 40 or five, 45 or 50 minutes, and then I'll dismiss you, okay? But in that, the Holy Spirit's going to use it, all right? But I want to show you the difference between counterfeit foundations for hope and a real foundation for hope when you need hope. And the first one I want to talk about is positive thinking. Positive thinking is not bad in and of itself. It's not sinful. But positive thinking has become a counterfeit foundation for hope in the Western church. There's no question about it. It is taught widely. It's everywhere. Okay? I was, I've talked regularly to people in our church who are impacted by it. It's in all the famous books and the famous speakers and the, and the preachers on TV. Is this positive thinking. That if you're a Christian, when you get in trouble, this is what you do. You just think positive. That's how you get hope. You're a Christian, you go into the doctor, and the doctor says, you have cancer. Then this is how you get hope. You think healing thoughts. You think over and over and over again, I'm going to be healed. 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 And that's your hope as a Christian. Well, first of all, I want to say again, is it sinful to think positive thoughts like that? No. The problem is that instead of going into the presence of God and finding out what He wants, you just make up these thoughts and just think them. By the way, that's wishful thinking. And so you just think positive thoughts. That's our hope. That's our foundation. That's what we do. Just think healing thoughts. And many places now this teaching just keeps getting more and more extreme. And in many churches, again, this is common. This is not rare. This is common. 
It is also taught that you don't allow any negative thoughts into your mind, even if they're real, even if they're true. And this has led to the bizarre situation where there are many Christians now in the West who cannot even admit to reality. They can't even pray for each other because if they admit that they need prayer for something, then they're being negative and they're cursing themselves. I could tell you story after story after story. I'm thinking of one person a few years ago and uh, diagnosed with cancer. What do you do when you're a Christian and you're diagnosed with something like cancer? Well, you want to share your burden with some other believers, right? You want to get prayer. You want to get prayed for. You want someone to empathize with you, right? Well, this person, that's what they wanted to do too, so they got together with some friends, not from our church. And, and good people, okay? They're not bad people. It's bad teaching. But they got together with their friends and they want to unburden. And so they say to them, I have can't. They're just into it. They can't even say the word. And her friends shut the conversation down. Don't say that word. Don't say that word because you'll curse yourself. Now again, those people aren't bad. We're not against those people, but that's bad teaching. They were trying to do what they thought was best. But do you see how bizarre that is? Now you can't even share your burdens with people. Galatians 6 says, carry each other's burdens. But there's this whole teaching that you can't even say something negative because now you've cursed yourself. Let me just, I want to say this right off the top. I've wanted to say this for months. Because I've talked to other people in this church who have been influenced by this and they're afraid to say true things because they're afraid then they're cursing themselves. Let me tell you something. You never curse yourself when you tell the truth. It is never a curse to tell the truth. I could tell you more horses. I mean, there's lots. I'm thinking of a woman, again, not from our church. Not bad people, bad teaching. Thinking of a woman from, not from our church uh, a few years ago, a uh, single mom with kids, and uh, she contracted cancer. And at her church, they were teaching her over and over again, you gotta be, you gotta, you're, you're going to beat this thing, you're going to beat this thing, you're going to beat this thing. You only think, I'm going to beat this thing. And so guess what? She didn't make a will. She didn't get ready to die. She didn't prepare her kids. She didn't prepare her kids for her death or prepare anything else. Because that would be admitting defeat, and that would be cursing yourself. That's how the teaching goes. And then she died. And because she didn't make a plan for her children, her children went into the foster care system instead of to someone who loved God. You know what that is? That is criminal. That's awful. We don't want to be positive thinkers. We don't want to be negative thinkers. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you're thinking right now, uh, well, Chris, are you just telling us now that we should just become negative thinkers? You're saying, don't be a positive thinker, be a negative thinker. Just always see the worst. Plan for the worst. That's what Chris is teaching us to do. No. I could tell you on the flip side, I've told you some stories from outside of our church. I can tell you some stories from inside our church from just this past year of people whose funerals I've been to where I was inspired at the funeral. I'm thinking of a couple different ones. I was inspired. I mean, it's always sad. At a funeral, you're saying goodbye to someone you love and you're going to miss them. It's always sad. It's sad. But in the sadness, everyone who was there at some of these funerals that I was at this past year here in this building with people from our church family, and it was inspiring. These were people who believed in healing, but when they prayed for healing, they sensed God saying to them, no, not for you. I want you to come home. And you know what they did then? They didn't fear death. They got themselves ready for death. They got the people around them ready for death. They wrote letters. They evangelized. And they went out victoriously. They went out victoriously. Now that's what I call, that's true thinking. Let me just help you to differentiate here between the three different ways of thinking because I want, I want to make sure that you just really get this. Let's be real clear. 
Positive thinking is the following. I deny negative realities and I engage in wishful thinking. It's wishful thinking because you made up the positive reality you want to come true. You didn't actually get it straight from God. You didn't have to go into his presence and get his heart for the matter and spend hours pouring out your your heart and your burdens at his feet and hanging on to him and then he spoke a word to you. You just made it up. Well, obviously God's going to heal me because he loves me. That's positive thinking. You just deny negative realities. I don't have cancer. I don't have this. I'm going to be healed. And you, you just engage in wishful thinking. That's positive thinking. But we also don't want to be negative thinkers. Negative thinkers acknowledge negative realities, but then they focus on those negative realities, and they are, and they are beaten by those negative realities. I mean, we don't, I'm not telling you to go from po- not be positive and become a negative. A negative, that, that is just plain sinful. Now you just focus on this thing and you get bitter about it and you get fearful about it and you get worried about it and that's not what we want to be either. We want to be true thinkers. Here's a true thinker. I acknowledge this negative situation in my life and now I go to God and I get his perspective about it and when I get God's perspective about it, it doesn't beat me anymore. I talked to a man last week from this church, known him for many years, Good, just a, a wonderful part of our Southland Church family here. This past uh, summer he had a a very serious uh, bout and fight with cancer. And when he first got the cancer, uh, I mean, it did not look good at all, and he thought he was going to die. And you know what he told me? With tears in his eyes this last week on Saturday night. He said, I had a countdown to when I would get to see Jesus. Is that unbelievable or what? And then he pulled through. And you know what he's dealing with now? Disappointment that he doesn't get to see Jesus. <laughs> and I said... You can't beat a man like that. That's victory. Victory isn't positive thinking. I don't have cancer. I don't have cancer. I'm going to be healed. Victorious thinking is, I'm not scared of death. That's victorious thinking. I'm not scared of death. And just in case you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, Chris doesn't believe in healing anymore. I most certainly do. I could tell you another story. Another man in our church right now. A few months ago, second bout with cancer. Looks horrible. Prognosis, terrible. Doctors don't think he has any chance. He doesn't think he has much of a chance. He's coming into the prayer room every weekend and getting prayed over and prayed over and prayed over. He comes in, and we as a staff one, one morning gathered around him, anointed him with oil, and prayed over him. And it didn't look good. Here he is a few months later. The cancer's almost gone. There's really no explanation. Every Saturday night that he's here, sometimes we sing that song, Healer, in worship. I can't sing. I'm all choked up. Say, why are you sharing all these different stories with us? Here's the reason. Victory comes in different shapes and sizes. Sometimes God wants to give you victory over your circumstances, and sometimes God wants to give you victory in your circumstances. He always wants to give you victory, but the positive thinkers think it's only over, never in. And God can give you, and here's the thing. God in his sovereignty, he's the one who gets to choose which way it is. I mean, if it was our choice how victory would happen, it's always over, amen? The one that's the least pain, that's the one for me, right? We're all like that. That's just human. But God says, I get to choose. Let me ground this in Scripture for you. Let's just look at the fact that victory comes in different ways. Hebrews chapter 11, very famous passage. The hall of faith passage, all the miracles God does. Uh, Only problem is that many people stop reading at a certain point. I'm going to keep reading at that point. But let's just start a few verses before, all right? Hebrews 11, I want to show you that victory comes in different shapes and sizes. And sometimes God wants to give you victory over, and sometimes God wants to give you victory in your circumstances, right? 
Hebrews 11, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Hallelujah. Right? Whoa, faith. Splitting the sea, getting the healing. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Amen. We love it so far still. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in a weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women receive back their dead by resurrection. I'm going to stop right there because that's where people always like to stop. Look at, wow. When you have faith, this is what happens to you, right? You, you shut the mouths of lions. You win. When you have faith, you win. Yes, certainly. Sometimes that's how it works. When you have faith, you win like this. But the very next sentence, it's not even a break. I just put the break in here because I didn't want you reading ahead. The very next sentence, the very next word, it's not even a new paragraph. He just keeps going in the same breath. And he's still talking about faith. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, poor, lonely, and sick. That's how they went through life. Wait a minute! I thought the ones with faith, oh, they always get a healing. They always get a miracle. They always get the prayers answered exactly the way they wanted them to. Nope. He's still talking about people of faith. Many of them went about destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Poor, sick, lonely, mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, not just the ones who shut the mouths of lions, but all of these were commended for their faith. All of these. The ones who had victory over and the ones who had victory in, but God chooses. Both sets of people have victory in God's eyes. Both sets. Now, one of the things I find very uh, encouraging about this is a lot of people are constantly gauging whether or not they have success or faith by, well, my, this hasn't happened yet. I haven't had victory yet. Actually, victory has nothing to do with an external. It's an internal. You, can, you don't have to wait for your circumstance to change. In fact, for some of you, it'll never change. For some of these people, it never changed. They were, they were destitute and afflicted and mistreated their whole life, right to the end. You don't have to wait for external circumstances to have victory in God's eyes. You can have it right now because it's an internal thing. And you know when you have it, when you have God's peace before the answer to prayer even comes. See, the moment you say, you, you have cancer, you're going to die, and you say, I get to see Jesus, you can't be beaten. You literally, you cannot be beaten at that point. That is victory. It's an internal thing. It's not a circumstantial thing. Well, let's look at some other scriptures. What did Paul think? 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Does victory only come when we get the healing, when we get the answer to prayer? Let's see what Paul says. So to keep me from, again, famous passage, we've looked at this many times. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan harassed me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Now I just want to stop there for a moment because Paul is not a hypochondriac. Okay? Paul is not a wimp. 
This is a man who has been beaten many times, flogged, imprisoned, starved, shipwrecked. He's been mistreated. He's been stoned. He's been everything. They've done horrible things to him. This is not a guy who just complains about things. So when he says that he's pleading to the Lord to take this thing away, this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is, and there's all kinds of arguments about what it is, doesn't even matter. We can settle it at this. It had to have been serious. It was a very serious situation and a hindrance to him. And Paul says, dear God, you've got to take this away from me. Please take it away from me. And he goes into the presence of God. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God says, "Uh, no, I'm not taking it away from you. I'm not healing you in this case. I'm not answering your prayer. I'm going to give you victory in this thing. Now, the thing I want you to notice, again, many Christians throw around this verse. This is a very popular verse. We just throw it around, oh, God's power is made perfect in weakness. And then we take this verse, and and then we think we've done everything we need to do. We don't actually press into the presence of God for ourselves. We think just quoting this verse makes us strong. The reason Paul turned around is because he went into the presence of God and got this from God to his heart. That's why he went from pleading to in the next verse he says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. He didn't get there by just tritely throwing out a verse that someone talked to him once or he heard it on the radio while he was on the way to work. He went into the presence of God and met with God and in the presence of God and relationship with God, God spoke it to his heart. That's when you get victory. It says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. He's gone from pleading, take this away from me, to I am content. I'm content. What a statement. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That kind of hope, that kind of victory, only comes from you walking with God for yourself. You can't get that from anybody else. You go to God for yourself. He's sitting up there. He made the entire universe. He's sovereign and powerful, and he is the answer to all of your problems. Paul went into his presence, and God said, I'm going to give you victory over it in there. And then Paul had victory without the thorn being taken away. He was content. He was at peace. He was filled with joy. That's victory. Problem with positive thinking, why it's a counterfeit foundation, is because in positive thinking, people just assume that the only way to get victory is to get this particular miracle. They just assume. And when you begin to assume this is the miracle God's going to do for me, what will happen is you'll miss the actual miracle God wants to give you. Because God does want to do miracles in your life. But you'll go for this one. You'll say, God's going to heal me, God's going to heal me, God's going to heal me, and there's actually a better one over here, but you'll be so focused on this one, you'll miss this one here. Let me show you this in Scripture. There's actually many stories. But I was praying this week, I was saying, Lord, give me a, give me a good story. And, and uh, he reminded me of a story of Jeremiah and Zedekiah. So let's talk about Jeremiah and Zedekiah. It's a, it's a long story spread over many chapters, so you can read about it at home, but you can write it down. Jeremiah 29 to Jeremiah 39, or 21, sorry, to Jeremiah 39. 18 chapters, many, many chapters, okay? But here's a story, okay? I'll give you a little overview, and then we'll look at some passages. Uh, it takes place 506, 508 B.C., somewhere in there. We're not sure of the exact year. Um, But what has happened is Babylon has already defeated Israel. They've already defeated them. They've already exiled all the main leaders. 
Okay, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're already long in Babylon, okay? And Israel is just a puppet state. They don't have an army. They don't have anything. And Nebuchadnezzar has installed a puppet king in Jerusalem, and the king's name is Zedekiah, okay? And so here's some important things you need to know about Zedekiah. Zedekiah is, is uh, he believes in Yahweh, the God of Israel. He believes in the right God. He's not following, he's not worshiping Baal or that sort of stuff. He believes in God, the real God. Well, that's good. And not, the other thing you need to know about Zedekiah is he knows the history of Israel. He knows the history of how God rescued Israel out of Egypt and, and how split the Red Sea and, and the miracles he did for David and Samson and all the rest. Zedekiah knows all this stuff. So again, good. He believes in the right God. I mean, if he lived today, he'd call himself a Christian. I mean, he believes in Yahweh he, and all this sort of stuff. Good. In, in addition to this, he's got all kinds of prophets and priests that all believe in Yahweh too. And they're all on board. Yes, God, all this sort of stuff. So you think, well, this story, this is going to be a good story. Okay? The only problem is that these guys, instead of going into the presence of God to see, God, what is your plan for us in this time? They decide, well, hey, we're the chosen people, right? This is how many people think today. We're Christians. We're children of God. That means he has to heal me. Zedekiah and the prophets and priests thought the same thing. We're Jews. God, we're the chosen people. He gave us this land. Nebuchadnezzar is evil. That's true too. Everything they're saying is doctrinally true. We're loved. We're chosen people. True. Therefore, God must want to deliver us from Babylon right now. Not true. Same thing many positive thinkers, many faith people are saying today. I'm a child of God, therefore God wants to do this, 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 and this for me. Well, not Zedekiah. The problem with Zedekiah and the prophets and the priests is none of them actually pressed into the presence of God and find out that he has a bigger plan going on right now. That he actually doesn't want the children of Israel in the land for 70 years. He said, I will, they are going to be out of the land for 70 years exactly. And there's a reason for that. I won't go into that. But I want them out of the land for 70 years. And then he had a plan for Cyrus and the Persians. And what was going to happen? God had this big plan. Zedekiah and his prophets and priests show up, not even in the middle of it. There's still 54 years left of bondage in Babylon. And they say the time is right now because we're the chosen people. God wants to deliver us. But none of them actually presses into the presence of God. They just say great things about God that look good. And it's positive thinking. And, and, and so that's what they do. So Zedekiah casts off the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king of Babylon. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take kindly to this. He raises up a huge army, yada, yada. He's marching on Israel to besiege Jerusalem. And he's going to put a big siege on there. He's going to starve them out. He's going to kill them all. And uh, while this is happening, Zedekiah and prophets and priests, they don't repent of what they've done. Because they're still looking up for a miracle. They're like, we're the chosen people of God. God is not going to let us be beaten. And they're just so positive. They're throwing prophecies out left, right, and center. We're going to win. God's going to overcome Nebuchadnezzar, all this sort of stuff. Let me read you one of them, okay? Jeremiah 28. Hananiah, in that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me, that's Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Okay? Very spiritual. He's got the right God, right? They're not worshiping idols at this point. He's speaking in the name of the right Lord. I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Oh, the faith. And everybody's cheering. Can you see it? Hallelujah. Amen. Right? 
I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Everybody's going, amen. Amen. And the only one who's not saying amen is this one lone prophet who nobody likes, and his name is Jeremiah. And we, of course, know who's right because he's the one who got the book named after him. But anyway. <laughs> and uh, Jeremiah, by the way, when we read the Old Testament, we always read about the bad guys and the good guys. And it's obvious because we're reading thousands of years later and the Bible tells us which ones are the bad ones. So we read this and we go, oh, those crazy Zedekiah the prophets and the priests. Like, just crazy. And yet, how many of us are getting duped today by the same people? We're getting duped by the same message. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, by the way, can I just say this, a little rabbit trail. Uh, if you read through the Old Testament, you know what you'll find? Most of the time, it's the positive prophets who are the false ones. Most of the time, it's the positive prophets who are the false ones. And if we would have lived in that time, many of us would have been duped because they were saying, look it, God is bigger than Nebuchadnezzar. Amen, brother, preach it. And Nebuchadnezzar is evil. Amen, brother, preach it. And we're the chosen people of God. Amen. And God gave us the land of Israel. Amen. And it's all true so far. Therefore, we're going to cast off the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Wait a minute. Has anybody consulted the Lord on this? So Jeremiah comes along and he says, he's the lone one. He says, you should never have rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. God calls it a sin. It's not part of his plan. It's not part of his timing right now. And because you rebelled against him out of God's timing and not in his way and not in obedience to his word, you're going to lose. You're going to get beaten, you're going to be killed, and the city's going to be burned. And you know what they said to Jeremiah? Negative talker! Let's put him in jail. And you can read all this, Jeremiah 29 to 30, 21 to 39. You're negative, you're weakening the people's faith, yada, yada, they're getting him in trouble. Okay, let me just read you one of Jeremiah's messages. Very, you know, excellent, seeker-sensitive message and uh, positive message. This is from Jeremiah, let me just read the, Jeremiah 21. It says this, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, or whatever, I don't know how you say that with two A's. <laughs> bah. But anyway, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus shall you say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands. He's going to turn their weapons back on themselves. I'm going to turn back. Yeah, his chosen people. Because they're not listening to him. I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. I'm going to read a couple more verses yet, but let's just stop there for a moment because people are going, whoa, that's a negative message. And we think because it's negative, it's bad. It's not a negative message. It's a true message, and that's all that matters. We need to stop thinking positive, negative. We need to think true or false. It's not a negative message. It's a true message. But here's the cool part. I'm going to read you in the next verse. God in his mercy is still going to give Zedekiah a chance to live. 
He's still going to offer Zedekiah a miracle. He's not going to offer Zedekiah the miracle Zedekiah has been claiming. He's going to, answer, give, he's going to offer him a different one. So let's see what he offers to him. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, before, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. God says, I'm not going to give you the miracle of defeating Nebuchadnezzar. I'll give you a different miracle. Nebuchadnezzar is really mad. If you just give up right now and, and give up on this stupidity that you started and you called, but you said it was in my name, but it hasn't been in my name because I didn't tell you to do it. If you just give up right now and surrender and give up, then you can still have your lives as a prize of war. You'll, you'll all live. Well, what did Zedekiah and the prophets and the priests respond to that? That's negative thinking, to say that the children of God could be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. And let's look at how that turned out for them. Jeremiah chapter 39. So they decided to resist. They decided to, they decided to purposely ignore the miracle God was offering them and keep claiming the one he wasn't. So in Jeremiah 39, we find out the end of this story. In, Je- in January of the ninth year of King Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar came with his army to besiege Jerusalem. Two and a half years later, on July 18, in the eleventh year of Zedekiah's reign, the Babylonians broke through the wall and the city fell. All the officers of the Babylonian army came in and sat in triumph at the middle gate. Nergal, Sherezer of Samgar, and Nebo, Sarsikam, a chief officer, and Nergal, Sherezer. These are great names for some of you who are just about to have babies, right? So just some excellent ones in there. But anyway... The king's advisor and all the other officers. When King Zedekiah and all the soldiers saw that the Babylonians had broken into the city, they fled. They waited for nightfall, and then they slipped through the gate between the two walls behind the king's garden and headed toward the Jordan Valley. But the Babylonian troops chased the king and caught him on the plains of Jericho. They took him to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who was at Riblah in the land of Hamath. There the king of Babylon pronounced judgment upon Zedekiah. He made Zedekiah watch as they slaughtered his sons and all the nobles of Judah. Then they gouged out Zedekiah's eyes, bound him in bronze chains, and led him away to Babylon. Meanwhile, the Babylonians burned Jerusalem, including the palace, and tore down the walls of the city. Now that is a very sad ending. And it's really sad because it never needed to happen. That was not part of God's original plan. And it's even more sad because even after they had embarked on this, God gave them an off-ramp and said, you can still get off and be saved. And they still miss it because they were so consumed with, our God is so great, he's going to deliver us, all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't coming from God, it was just coming from their own mind. And this is why positive thinking doesn't work. Positive thinking just becomes this stopping point where I just stop here rather than actually get into God's presence and hear what he thinks for himself. I just stop here and assume this is what he's thinking. And how can we, with our puny minds, think that we know what's best for us in a given situation? How can we think that? How can we think that if, I, you know, if, I, if I'm healed in this situation, that's the best situation, therefore that's the one I'm claiming it. Of course, we always default to the one that gives us the least pain. That always sounds like the best option to us. It always sounds like the best one to me. But we don't get God's perspective. We don't go into his presence. We don't sit in his throne room and see things from his viewpoint. And then we end up claiming things that just come off the top of our head. You know, there's a famous story, Corrie ten Boom. Any of you who knows about Corrie ten Boom has heard this story. Very famous story. But Corrie ten Boom is, is one of my heroes of the faith. What a godly woman she was. And uh, she wrote a book, uh, a story of her life. It's called The Hiding Place. If you have not read The Hiding... It should be mandatory reading for all Christians, okay? 
It should just be that, okay? If you haven't read it, we have it in the library. You need to read it, okay? If you can't read, learn to read and read The Hiding Place, <laughs> okay? You can watch the movie, but it's not nearly as good as the book, okay? And they've made multiple movies. But anyway, The Hiding Place, Cory Ten Boom, one of my heroes of the faith. Anyway, in World War II, her and her family, the Ten Booms, okay? They're Dutch, living in Holland, godly people, God-fearing people, and they're hiding Jews in their home. And they, get, they got caught doing it by the Nazis. And the Nazis sent a whole family, the parents and his siblings, all into concentration camps where they all died except for Corey. Okay? And uh, in that, uh, but while they were in this concentration camp, one very, very famous story. Uh, Corey and Betsy were taken, the, the men were taken to, to different ones and, and the mother as well. But Corey and Betsy were taken together to a very notorious, one of the notorious uh, death camps, concentration camps, which was Ravensbrück. And uh, they were taken there, and uh, they managed to sneak a Bible past the guards on the first day, for which you could get into a lot of trouble. And then the guards took them to the barracks where they would be living and sleeping. And so they kind of threw them into the barracks, and they're looking around their first time. This is where we're going to be living for the next while. And there's wooden slats. It's filthy. It is rotting in there. Uh, but one of the first things that catches their eye is that this place is swarming with fleas and lice. Swarming. I mean, you can look down and you can see them moving. You sit down on one of these slats and they're covering your legs and your body, okay? It's swarming with fleas and lice. Well, the first thing Betsy does is she pulls out this Bible that they snuck in. She turns to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, or 5, well, it's 16 to 18. The three verses all kind of come together, but I think it's, it might be verse 18. But anyway, and she says, uh, and it, where it says, give thanks to God in all circumstances. And so she begins, right there in front of Corey, she begins to systematically thank God for everything that's in those barracks. And Corey, I mean, I would have been more like Corey at this point for sure, okay? Corey is going, are you kidding me, okay? And Betsy is thanking God. We'll talk about godliness. That's a whole new level of godliness. And she gets to fleas, and she says, thank you, God, for these fleas. And at this point, Corey just loses. How can you thank God for these fleas? I mean, none of us here today, well, I mean, in, in North America today, North American Christianity, we would not be thanking God for those fleas. We would be binding those fleas in the name of Jesus, and I cast you to a place that Jesus sends you never to return. Right? We'd be speaking to those things. I'm speaking to you fleas. Out. Right? Po the positive thinkers would be saying, there's no fleas in here. There's no fleas. I'm not getting bit. I'm not itchy. Right? It's not God's will for me to have to suffer with fleas. We're going to pray these things out. We're going to start a curse. These are demonic. They're from the devil. We've got to get rid of them. That's what we would be doing, not thanking God for the fleas. We've got to get rid of the fleas. That's not God's will. Well, anyway, so the place is swarming with fleas, and uh, life begins at Ravensbrook. And uh, Betsy and Corey begin little Bible studies, very timidly at first, because you get in a lot of trouble if the guards find you doing that. But at night, you know, in hellish, all day, you're out in this camp, and, and it's horrible, and then you come back to the barracks, and then they would secretly, timidly have a little Bible studies with one or two women here, one or two women there. And, uh, but over time, they get more and more bold as the months go on, and there are more and more women. And, and by the way, the, the transformation of those women, because in a lot of these camps, people would just begin to act like animals because it's so hellish. And, and they actually started to see a change in the women in this camp as these women are coming to know Christ and they're feeding on his word, and they're praying for each other. These women are starting to love each other and sacrifice for each other rather than fight each other. And so God's life is coming into Ravensbrook. And uh, after a few months, their, their Bible studies are pretty much everyone in a the barracks. They've got these huge 
times together. Every evening, you, you go out and it's horrible. And you come back in the evening and there's this respite. And, you can, and these people love each other and they love God. And it's awesome. And, and the guards are, are not stopping them. And they don't understand it. And they're thankful. Thank you, God, that the guards aren't stopping us. And, God, and there's life in this barracks. One day after a number of months, Corey is coming in from uh, cleaning up wood or whatever it is, and Betsy by this point was very, very sick, and she wouldn't make it alive out of Ravensbrook, but she was in, doing inside work now in the barracks. She would be inside all day knitting socks. And, and one day Corey comes back from her work, and Betsy is standing in front of her bed, and she's at a huge triumphant grin. And, uh, and uh, Corey says, what's up? And she says, I know why the guards uh, don't stop us from our Bible studies. Corey says, well, why? Well, what had happened was that day there had been some confusion about sock sizes and different things, and Betsy had left the barracks to go get the supervisor and some guards um, and to, f- to figure this out. What are we supposed to do? And so she went to the supervisor and said, you've got to come and help us with this thing. We don't know what to do and the size and all this sort of stuff. And the supervisor and the other guards had all refused to come into the barracks because they said, it's swarming with fleas. And so the very thing, the very thing that we would have cursed, that we would have prayed away and all this sort of stuff was the very thing that was protecting them so that God's life would come into that place. If they would have prayed, if they would have prayed, God, get rid of these fleas, and if God would have answered it, there would have been no Bible studies. There would have been no presence of God in that barracks saving women. This respite, this heaven in the middle of hell. Those fleas were God's gift to them. The very thing that they thought was a curse was the thing God was using to protect them. And I wonder how many of us here today have got fleas in our lives. I'm not talking about literal fleas, okay? Some of you shifting over from the guy beside you, right? <laughs> but you've got something in your life that you're, you're cursing that thing in the name of Jesus, and you're coming against that thing, and you're not negative thinking, and you're all this sort of stuff, and what you're missing is that's the gift. You're like Zedekiah. You're running after this one here, and God's saying, no, 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 this is the gift. And you're missing it. This is biblical. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that God causes all things. Not some things, not one or two. He causes all things. Think about that. Wherever you are on your continuum of hopelessness or darkness, a door that just got slammed, prayer that didn't get answered, someone just died, an accident, a diagnosis, a marriage that just doesn't seem to be turning around in its years. God says all things, all of those things fit into all things. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. All things he causes to work together for good. That means in every one of those things, there's a gift. It's like Christmas. It's like Christmas. No matter what's happening in your life that's stressing you out, that's breaking you down, it's like Christmas because in that very thing, there is a gift from God. There's a miracle for you in there somewhere. I want you to notice that there is an if. It's not God causes all things to work together for good for all people. No. It's not God causes all things to work together for good for all Christians. No. It's God causes all things to work together for good for only one group of people. The group of people that is this, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. To those who are following him and submitted to him. They're listening to him. They're walking with him. They have his heart. And they're going with him and they're saying, Lord, whatever you want, I'm going to do. And I love you. Those people, there is nothing in this world where there isn't a gift in that thing from God. Now, I want to stop here and just rabbit trail one other thing here because one of my counterfeit foundations is claiming promises without relationship. 
So many Christians say, it's just so shallow. We just, I mean, Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of the most famous passages anywhere. I mean, it gets said on Christian radio every 30 minutes, I think. For I know all the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. By the way, it's a great verse. I'm not making fun of the verse. What I'm making fun of is Christians don't spend any time with God. They don't walk with God at all. They just, oh, yeah, I know that verse. They probably don't even know where it is, but I heard it on the radio. And I just throw that, if I just throw that verse out tritely, I don't have to go into the presence of God. I can just throw a verse around. Everything's going to be fine because God's going to prosper me and not harm me. Tra-la-la, like this. <laughs> says, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The promises in scripture are not just for anyone who just throws a Bible verse around. They're for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But for those who love him and are called according to his purpose... All things work together for good. There's a gift in every single thing. And that's why we can be thankful in all things, because in all things there is this gift. And if we go to the one that Betsy read, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now some of you are sitting there and you're saying right now, well, Chris, are you saying that we should never pray for healing, that we should never pray for a miracle, that we should just accept bad things when they happen. No, that's not what I'm saying. Any of you who was here at the prayer summit this last Tuesday, I was leading the prayer summit, what did we do? We prayed for healing for people who are sick. What I'm saying is it isn't a formula. Sometimes the gift is God wants to heal you, but sometimes you're going to be like Zedekiah if you go for the healing. You're going to miss what he actually wants to give you, which is even better. It's not three steps to a miracle. It's not claim this promise. It's not pray this prayer and everything will be okay. It's not any of those things. It's not a formula. There is one solution. You want a solution? You want hope? You want three steps to overcoming? Here's what it is. Step one, get alone with God. Step two, get alone with God. Step three, see step one and step two. Get alone with God. <laughs> We've lost this art. Here in North America, we'll do anything but get alone with God. Oh, give me 15 hours of DVD series of how to be happy and healthy. By the way, you can get it on the internet right now. Not from this church, you won't. But 10 steps to be happy and healthy. There's a series like that right now. Three steps. Pray this prayer. We'll, we'll listen to hours of DVDs. We'll read books. We'll go to counselors. And by the way, going to counselors and reading books and learning all sorts of stuff, that's all good. It's all necessary. But we do that instead of getting along with the God of the universe. He is the solution to our problems. Anything you do that doesn't include you going to, into the presence of God for yourself is just coping. You'll never overcome. You'll never overcome. You'll just cope. Those other things are fine. Inner healing is good. Deliverance is good. Counselors are good. Books are good. Learning is good. Listening to messages is all good if you are also walking in relationship with God. Because only He can solve your problems. He is the solution. So when tragedy hits, when you get a diagnosis, I'll tell you what you do when things get dark. There's one thing you do. You go into your basement or your bedroom or your closet or your tree stand, okay? Whatever, some of you, you got to kill animals in order to hear God's voice. I don't, I don't understand it. Okay? Someone's cheering over there. Wow. Okay? Probably from Grunfall. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that was good. That was good. But anyway, um, most likely true. But you get along with God, you go into your prayer closet, and you 
pour out your heart. You just got bad news. Good. I mean, not good that you got bad news, but you have a solution. Go with God. And you spend one hour there. You spend two hours. You spend whatever you need to do. But you pour out your heart to him and you wait on him until he lifts the burden. That's what the Bible tells us to do, by the way, for hope. What did Moses do when the people wanted to kill him? Fell on his face before God. He didn't call up a counselor quick. He didn't read a book. What do I do when people want to kill me? And I got to read 10 steps to get out of this. He fell on his face before God. There was nobody else to turn to. What did Joshua do when when they got defeated at Ai? And they're like, what in the world? We're supposed to be winning, not losing. Fell on his face before God. What did King David do when his wife and kids had been kidnapped and his men were openly talking about stoning him? On his face before God, waiting on the Lord. You read through the Psalms, look how many times you find the phrase, wait upon the Lord. Elijah, Jezebel sends him a letter, I'm going to kill you tomorrow morning. He runs to the mountain of God, sits in a cave there until he hears the gentle whisper. Like I said, here in North America, we don't do that anymore. We do all the self-help stuff, we do all the 10-step stuff, but we don't get along with God. And the solution to our problems, the only way to find hope, the only sure foundation that works is to get alone with God and have him speak to your heart and get his heart for the situation. And then, whether he heals you or not, once you have his perspective, you win. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In the very darkest things that you're struggling through right now, God has some amazing thoughts. He's got amazing thoughts about that situation. He's got amazing thoughts about that marriage. He's got some amazing thoughts about that diagnosis. He's got some amazing thoughts about that accident. He has higher thoughts you can't even imagine. But the only way to access those thoughts is to get into his presence for yourself. You can't live off of somebody else's presence. Lots of people today, you want to come to church and you want to hear somebody get pumped up for God who's been in the presence of God and you want to have that waft into your life so you have a bit of hope. You want to watch someone on TV or read a book by someone who spent hours with God so you can be pumped up too. That's not going to carry you through dark times. You have to go into the presence of God for yourself. Let me finish with this one verse, Jeremiah 23. If I go back to the Jeremiah and Zedekiah story, right in the middle of Zedekiah and all the priests and prophets saying how great God is. He's going to defeat. He's going to win. We're going to win because of God. Right while this is happening, God is lamenting to Jeremiah and he's, and he's lamenting about these people who are speaking in his name but who are not actually listening to him. Look at this. This is what God says, his lament to Jeremiah. For who among them has stood in the council of the Lord? That's a, that's a question for the church today in North America. Who among them has actually stood in the counsel of the Lord? Has actually gone into the presence of God, not just heard somebody else talk about the presence of God, not heard someone sing about it on CHVN, but they actually went and stood in the counsel of God for themselves. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we want to be a church who our hope and faith is founded on our relationship with you. 
I pray, dear God, that this week as many people in our church family begin to pursue you and to go into your presence, Lord, I pray that you will meet them in a very sweet and fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen.